Welcome to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Markle. I'm a Curriculum Development Specialist here at NCBRT, and I work in collaboration with subject matter experts to create valuable and timely training for the responder community. The National Center for Biomedical Research and Training provides mobile training to both the national and international emergency response community. Today on the podcast, we're finishing up our conversation with Jeff Woody, Joe Reardon, and Lorenzo Alba about worker and facility issues, as well as food insecurity in a crisis. Thank you to Jeff, Joe, and Lorenzo for coming on the podcast and sharing with us today. Can we expand a little bit on how the COVID-19 crisis has affected food insecurity in the United States? Yes, I actually got some numbers from my friends over at Roadrunner this morning on what's happening uh, by county here in New Mexico. And uh, pre-COVID, I think in Doñana County, uh, the number that they had uh, was about 15.6% uh, food insecurity here in our county. Our county is about, uh, Secretary Whitty, about 250,000 people. Yep. Um, yes. Right in the springtime when uh, everything was really coming to a head here, the number went up a little over 21%. Uh, that's kind of what we've seen here. I, I can see it happening. Um, they also showed that in the fall, it went down about a percent and a half, the food insecurity here, which I think could be true for some areas like Las Cruces, where a lot of people went back to work in restaurants and then um, then eventually aren't working anymore in restaurants. But um, I don't know that it's true for some of the rural communities in the Southern part of, of Doñana County the food insecurity is tipping 35, 40%. Uh, it, it's just, it's just huge. That's something that we are taking very seriously. As a matter of fact, we just uh, purchased another refrigerated box truck so that we could take the pressure off of our friends at the food bank and uh, be able to take some of the food there ourselves, you know, have them deliver it to us. And then we load it up and take it there to the rural areas of the Southern part of the County, because that is where, the highest uh, poverty rates are and the highest food insecurity rates are in our county. Uh, it's The numbers have consistently gone up even at our flagship pantry uh, every single month. It, it's not like they've gone down at all. Uh, they've just been consistently slightly going up about uh, two to three percent each month. It's going to continue to happen. I don't foresee a change in that unless our economy just completely flips around quickly. Uh, we foresee this happening all the way into probably April or May before we begin to see any kind of change. Uh, we're hoping that uh, with some, uh, some, maybe a secondary or a third uh, CARES Act, uh, it would make a big difference uh, in the economy. And that's what we're banking on. But we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen uh, on a federal level. I know our state's trying to do quite a bit. Uh, hopefully this, leg this legislative session coming up will also prove to do quite a bit for, for uh, economic relief here in our state. Uh, so we're keeping a close eye on that. Food insecurity now, like I said, is on the spotlight. Everybody knows that it exists, but now it's on, you know, there's a big spotlight on it and we see the growing numbers. Uh, it's going to be an issue that uh, is going to have to be tackled uh, beginning at a local level. And then as a state, we're going to have to do a little bit more with it. Uh, the state uh, is now really doing more to, to look into food insecurity in our state. 
they just uh, passed the $5 million legislation to help the food banks get more food out in the state, which is tremendous. No, that's never happened before. That has never happened before here in New Mexico. Uh, so it just shows you where, where our leadership is and what they're trying to do uh, to, to address food insecurity in New Mexico. I think I think COVID really taught us that we had an, we have an infrastructure issue uh, in the rural areas. Lorenzo hit on a on a important point. He's having to buy another uh, cold storage trailer so that they can store the food and get it to the rural areas. If you think about a, a place like New Mexico, we're wide open. We we've got you know three three or four metropolitan type centers. The rest of the state is is basically very very rural. You look at the map of the United States. There's a lot of rural areas just like this. And infrastructure in our discussion with state leaders and and uh, the private sector, you know, trying to get food where it needs to go uh, and be able to store it was was one of our biggest challenges. When we were dealing with the Navajo Nation early on, we were needing to get, uh, you know, just unimaginable amounts of food over there overnight, and and yet we had no no way of storing it. Uh, it it took strong partnerships with the private sector and using some of their storage facilities in the the Navajo Nation territory uh, area to to really make that thing work. But yet we still had food going up there that was not of the the variety um, I'm not sure how to say this correctly but but it wasn't in a in a format that was usable to the folks who were needing it because on the Navajo Nation they have no in, in many cases, the families don't have refrigeration systems or, or power uh, to, to keep the food in a safe environment. So there's those challenges that we have to deal with as well, is, is, is the logistics of being able to uh, get the food where we need it, when, how we need it, and that kind of thing, to be able to store it. And I think COVID and, and some of the things that Lorenzo was talking about with the legislature, those are some of the things we're going to be looking at. No, I want to add, me in North Carolina, just like what you heard from New Mexico, we didn't have the storage capacity for the amount of food that was going through food distribution, going to the food banks. So we needed more cold storage. We needed more warehouse space. We needed more uh, tow motors, if you will, the equipment. We needed those that were trained to operate them. We needed more tractors and trailers and infrastructure. And then at the very same time, when you thought you were staffed up to be able to move these foods into the food pantries and into the schools and the community, then you were dealing with, you know, quarantines and exposure and, and close contact issues. And so we stood up an ICS program here specifically over moving products, food distribution uh, into the food banks and into the schools and the communities. So we could have some resiliency, some backup plans in place. And so the logistics around getting the food, getting it stored, getting it distributed and getting it out in the community, as Lorenzo knows very well, has been a challenge for us here. And, and actually even today, getting that food out there. I mean, on a national scale, food insecurity runs about 16 percent, but that's not in the middle of a pandemic. And, and we've seen these numbers, as Lorenzo talked about, 40% or more. And we know that uh, hungry children don't learn. And in many cases, the only good meal they were getting every day was at the school system. And then all of a sudden, they're, they're learning at home. And so how do you get that food into that home 
uh, feed these children so they can then do remote learning. Uh, not as good as being in a classroom, but to do the remote learning. Again, hungry children don't learn and, and neither do parents. Um, they need adequate food supply. And so uh, this has been one of the things that'll be a take home message, a lot learned here. And hopefully we'll be able to put some processes in place in the future to uh, help us even be more prepared on this whole food insecurity piece. It's very important, it's critical. I think I think Joe and Lorenzo also hit on another point that that needs to be uh, emphasized. We have counties in in the state of New Mexico that do not have a grocery store, so people would have to travel, you know, several maybe a hundred miles or more to get to food. Well, your definition of a food desert is just that, you know, food deserts are communities that that don't have access to food within like ten miles. Well, that's a large part of the state of New Mexico, and then when you're under stay-at-home orders that that really emphasizes the 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 problem and so having infrastructure out there where you can have these distribution points is is going to be key to the future that'll help after if there is an after covid and and we all hope there will be an after covid and in some sense of normalcy i think normalcy will be having access to storage facilities and distribution points at a more local level I agree. I think we're, we're trying to work on that as we speak now. I know Secretary Whitty knows of a project that I've been working on for a couple of years uh, to bring an additional storage area and a bigger facility uh, for Casa de Peregrinos in order for this kind of, uh, you know, we, we need to be a little more prepared for this kind of uh, thing. Uh, and this is probably the way to do it. Uh, I'm going to go pretty gun ho this uh, le legislative session to make sure that they understand how important it is for infrastructure in this part of the state, especially. But in those small communities, it, it is absolutely crucial that we figure out a way to get food to them. We need to figure out a way to get food to those food deserts and uh, taking into consideration, you know, the amount of children that, uh, the percentage of children that we're feeding right now is about 40% of the people that we serve. It's just an astronomical number. Uh, it, it's just it's just a lot. Uh, and in order for us to do that, the infrastructure is going to be key. Getting the storage area, getting transportation. I know our friends at Roadrunner Food Bank definitely need more transportation in order to address their logistics issues in a state as big as ours. Uh, we need to do a little bit more. And again, this is an opportunity for us because we've already learned so much through this for us to be actually be able to do more. So. Thank you. So um, we've seen a lot of increases in the price of food uh, during the pandemic. So how do you deal with the conflict between getting food to those who need it at a price they can afford and securing the price of food so that producers can still make money? Boy, that's that's challenge number one. That's a that's a challenge I have with a lot of legislators and, and others. We farming the the margins in farming are very slim uh, to to begin with and we had a, a meeting a few weeks ago maybe a month ago or so now uh, with some of the farm leaders and in, in uh, my uh, counterpart in the economic development department the the message from the the farmers were was this you know the minimum wage pushes their cost up uh, the the infrastructure pushes their costs up, uh, fuel, that kind of thing. 
And yet they make their contracts sometimes a year in advance, two years in advance for multiple year contracts as they're, they're doing their planning at a fixed cost. And, and the message that some of these producers were saying is that you have now pushed our cost to the point of we can't even harvest. The, the cost of harvest exceeds the, the price we're getting for the crop based on our contracts. You know, and then, and then we're trying to, to direct food and donations to places like Lorenzo's and, and Roadrunner Food Bank and others. And, and you know, our producers are, are, are having to, to make a living uh, to pay, pay for their, their living as well. The other, the other thing is this buy local movement in, in New Mexico, in many cases, uh, the farmers that have a retail connection sell it at a much higher price than what Lorenzo can afford to pay. And so while our producers are successful, we don't have the access to the local market that we uh, like at the food banks. So it's a, it's a challenge we deal with constantly. The prices of, of food have affected us, but you know, we just are so committed to making sure we can still buy the food. I, I'd rather go try to get a funder than to not buy it. Uh, it. It just it just doesn't make sense for us not to get it. Um, yes, I'll haggle and I'll probably get upset about costs and then I'll, you know, I'll get over it because uh, the mission is very simple for us to provide food for the families that need it. You know, it, we went through that during Thanksgiving and um, I we're going to probably go through it again and it'll happen and we'll, we'll, we'll have to deal with it. Uh, it's just, it's just something that we're committed to. And I, like I said, I'd rather have to go find additional funding than not purchase the food right now. We realize that this is a difficult time for everybody. Uh, so if there's any relief that our programs can add to those families and absolutely we're going to, we're going to do everything we can to make sure they have that relief. You know, this is a very complex topic and a great question you asked. And so I think what we're all going to be learning is what does a return to some sense of normalcy look like? You know, we live in a capitalistic society. These farmers have to make a profit. Um, they need workers to do that. And the people going into the stores hope to buy a product at a price that they can afford. Um, and so we've seen increases in commodity price. It has to do with uh, supply and demand. Uh, Lorenzo's right in his working with the resources to feed these children and feed these communities is paramount. But at the same time, we've also got to ensure that these companies that are farmers that are growing and producing these products are in business when COVID's over, that they have a market for their product, they have a profit margin that allows them to be successful. And so we're all going to be looking at really what's the long-term impact on COVID on our farmers and our ranchers and food production and distribution all across the country. And so we're having some of those conversations to, to really understand these markets disruptions, uh, what effect that's having on production and farming as a whole. We know that our farmers across the country are, are in their late 50s on average. Um, they're not a lot of young farmers. There are a lot of folks that are, uh, that are up in age that are farming. We know that the average farmer today feeds over 200 and some people. And so it's incumbent upon this country to ensure that the prioritizations and the processes are put in place to ensure that those that are farming continue to farm when COVID's gone. Those ranchers that are growing uh, cattle and swine and poultry continue in that function and capacity. 
And so we, we've got a lot to understand and a lot of things that we're going to have to be aware of to ensure that when this pandemic is over, and I believe it will be when the vaccines are routinely available, that we did not see a major impact to the number of farmers and ranchers and food processors across the country in the way of any shrinkage, if you will, in the number of those that are participating in that. If anything, we want to have more ranchers and more farmers in greater local food production when this is all said and done, but still a lot to be learned. You know, and it, and it goes back to, uh, and I won't get too deep into this, but it goes back to national farm policy. You know, over the over the years, we've ebbed and flowed between uh, production policies and, and risk-based policies. Right now, as a nation, we're under a farm bill that's mainly geared towards risk. Uh, doesn't guarantee a certain amount of production that comes on, on uh, from from our farm community so as so as a country those are choices that we make and, and you have far-reaching impacts on on farm bill type policies and and so it'll be interesting to see how the next farm bill evolves because i think you'll you'll see you could see a change in some of the dynamics if we shift away from some of the risk-based programs that we're in today from an economic development standpoint i think one thing that can be looked at especially with the agricultural community is that on a local level on a county level, on a state level, there needs to be more incentives, in my opinion, for the agricultural community. There needs to be more incentives for them to want to do more. You know, maybe the incentive would be, hey, you know what? If you do donate this to a food bank, or maybe you don't, you go ahead and do that additional harvest, and part of that uh, would be donated, but there would be some sort of relief. Uh, for labor costs, transportation costs that would come either from uh, local government, county government, or state government would really, really help um, keep them afloat. And more than anything, you know, keep that food supply chain open locally, uh, which would be incredible. It's difficult, difficult programs, they are, but I think they need to be on the forefront of economic development. They need to absolutely be on the forefront of economic development. So um, in general, what do you think have been the biggest lessons learned in the response to COVID-19 in the food sector? I'll, I'll start. Uh, I, I think the biggest lesson we've learned is that uh, we probably need more training on preparedness. It needs to be at the top uh, a priority for us. Uh, I was uh, actually speaking to Secretary Whitty offline, and uh, they're going to assist us with a recovery program. You know, his, his department's going to assist us with a recovery program for Casa Peregrinos. These are things we need to have in place. These are things we can't just set aside and say, oh, we'll do that. We actually need to do it. We need to get ready. We need additional training for our staff. Uh, we need to make sure they're prepared. We need to add more resources uh, to our repertoire of how we actually acquire food, if you will. We need to figure these things out now. Uh, Again, this has been very educational for all of us. We've all learned a little bit of something. I, I, I speak to my staff on a daily basis and uh, their ideas are flowing. They have ideas. They, they have ways that we can do this in a safer manner. Uh, as a matter of fact, we're just gonna add a drive up pantry to our new facility. You know, we're gonna try to limit the amount of people that actually come into our facility. Uh, it's just gonna be part of what we do from now on. We'll make it easy as easy as possible for the families but the partnerships that we have have also flourished how do we nurture them how do we continue to 
to, to keep them abreast of what's happening with food insecurity, abreast of what we're doing to keep people safe during these pandemics or these crises. It's been educational. We need more. We need more training. Uh, we need to know, uh, you know, exactly what uh, is required of us. And if we don't know those those things and aren't aren't educating ourselves on those things or getting the proper training, we're not going to be effective. And we know that we're going to need programs like yours definitely to help us be ready. And I've already got a few staff members that have been asking about it, so I'm super excited about what might happen after this. So. You know, the, the one thing I would add is that we've really, as Lorenzo said, and I know Secretary Woody will add, we've learned an awful lot. There'll be a lot of lessons learned here. But one of the things that does stand out is how fragile our food processing distributions uh, infrastructure is really, uh, how fragile it really is at the end of the day. If there's a disruption in the growing, we have an issue. If there's a disruption in the harvesting, or the processing and packing or distribution. Um, each of those are critical elements for the product finally ends up in the hands of that end consumer. And so we really understand more so now than ever how fragile this whole process is. And so we need to build resiliency uh, in every aspect of this. And I think our goal will be to look at this and break it down into segments and then look at that and what are the alternatives what are the resiliencies that need to be there? What type of training uh, needs to be there? And Lorenzo mentioned in, you know, NCBRT here uh, and the value that it has in some of its training courses uh, and response and the ICS structures. And so lots of lessons learned, um, but we will need to look at this critically and identify those things that can be implemented from a resilient aspect so that we can find those weak links, find those areas that can have significant disruption and put processes in place to minimize the impact of those disruptions. You know, it's, it's easy to follow, uh, or, or maybe it's, I should say it's hard to follow guys like Lorenzo and Joe because they cover a lot of grounds and, and, uh, and man, they, they just make it, uh, they, they covered 90% of what I had to say. I want to add on though, all, you know, we teach in our courses, all responses are local. I mean, here's a worldwide response, uh, and yet the impact is local. The, the effectiveness of the response is all local. So that's, that's lesson number one that, that we all need to keep in mind is that if you don't have the capacity at the local level, at, no matter what the response is uh, and, and the event is, it's going to be a bad day and it's going to be a bad week. It's going to be a bad month. It's going to be a bad year. And, and that's where we're at. So there's, there's one lesson. The other lesson is, is local is so important, local food. We have, we have evolved into a society around the world that we're a just-in-time society. Instant pudding is what I call it. We want things now. We want it uh, not tomorrow. We want it now. And all of a sudden, the supply chain, and, and because we had a very efficient logistics system set up, when one of those things, as Joe said, goes down, the whole thing craters. And so I think building a little re resiliency and redundancy is, is going to be something we have to look at in the future. Training, who, who would have thought that we're involved in a pandemic or any kind of an event that goes longer than, than a month? And now we're into this thing for, for nine months. We're looking at another six to eight months before probably vaccine is, is somewhat effective uh, in the population. 
So when does when does response become the norm? Uh, and and then how do we react? And and we teach recovery begins before the before the event happens. We've been in recovery mode from from day one, and yet we still don't know what that looks like as we, as we move forward. So, I think it's going to be critical. Uh, you know, those as we review this after action analysis, and there's, you know, in our state, there's many opportunities to review the after action part of this of this event, and we're taking them in pieces: the food distribution, the health network, and and that kind of thing. The logistics of of what's uh, not out there for infrastructure. All these are going to be more beneficial for for the whole world in the future. But I, I think those are those are just some of the things I wanted to add on to what Lorenzo and, and Joe uh, mentioned. I'll tell you what, it's given me a whole new respect for people that work in the ag industry and the food industry. It's a whole different level. Uh, they've really kind of kept everything going, and there's just absolutely no way to really thank them all you know, for what they've done and, and, and gotten us through this far. And it's quite incredible. Um, I know that even when the guys that bring our, you know, the vendors that bring our food, I'm just look at them like, you have no idea how grateful we are that you're still doing this. It's been incredible. You know, I, I have to add that everybody is, is spot on with this. And so what you would not want to have is a nationwide food shortage at the same time you're having a pandemic. You know, what we have to do is it's is, is hard enough managing one crisis at the time. And, and Secretary Woody said it well. You know, most of our responses to natural disasters are, you know, a few months in length. You have your preparation then you have the, the hurricane or tornadoes or floods. And then you come back on the other side of that and you're cleaning that up and you're you're responding. And then, you know, response really starts at the point recovery starts at the beginning of response. If you want to be successful in your recovery, you start that recovery aspect the minute you start your response. Well, what we know in this is it's been several months now, and there'll be several more months even with, with where we are today. And so that means that we have a, we really have to have greater capacity in those that manage these responses. You know, we all start with an A team, if you will, and now we've gone into a B team and a C team. And because what you're having is a, is, a, is a response over several months, nearly a year before this is all said done, I think it'll exceed 12 months. And so you've got to have those, uh, as Lorenzo and, and, and uh, Secretary Woody said, that uh, NCBRT can play a major role in training up multiple response teams that understands as one transitions off, the other one transitions in, and there's continuity between those teams so that we don't, nothing falls between the cracks, as you might say. And so this really underlines the importance of preparation and response. And nothing can be more important than uh, obviously the, the public health sector, the safety of all the people, but also the, the ability to continue to feed and distribute to those that are uh, uh, in, in schools and homes and communities. And so it really, again, under, underscores the importance of preparation and training. And so much more work to do is we really train additional people in this entire response mechanism, the tools to do that, using ICS as a framework for it. And so I think we've got a lot of good work to do with NCBRT all across the country. 
you, you know, and, and I just want to say, we're, here we are talking about responding to a human pandemic, you know, COVID-19. Over the years, we have talked about in the agriculture area, we, we, we've dealt with different kinds of pandemics, foot and mouth disease, uh, African swine fever, uh, avian influenza. And, and if you think about something like foot and mouth, uh, the outbreak and the correlation to COVID are, are very similar. And it's something that we have to pay attention to and, and something we've been talking about and thinking about for years. No one ever thought that we'd get into a human pandemic like this that lasted this long. If we got into a foot and mouth outbreak, there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from our COVID response that I think will be uh, good correlations uh, going forward. It's something we have to prepare for. Probably there's, as far as lessons learned, there's probably a few things that we would look at changing in the, in the foot and mouth response, knowing what we know today about responding to a human pandemic. Would you agree, Joe? 100%. You know, there's a lot of uh, uh, examples that we've learned from, uh, you know, obviously the overproduction of animals in the animal sector, how to deal with that successfully in a humane way. Those same kind of logistics and planning and operational aspects would be true in a fawn animal disease. And so there's a lot, of, a lot of similarities in preparedness and response in these issues. And so I'm, I'm with you 100%, Secretary Whitty. There's a lot we've learned here that will inform us as we go forward with some of these other things in which we've been planning for for years and decades in some cases. Looking into the future, how might our experience of COVID-19 impact what state or local levels ag or food response plans look like? I'll start with that. And I actually, we started our conversation around this. And it's all about partnerships. And that's not a trivial term or meant to be in any way just simply who, are, who the people we work are. But true partnerships mean that you understand their strengths, their weaknesses, the role that they play, and how you can do force multiplication and how the interdependencies, if you will, the interlinkages between these partners. So we've learned uh, a, a new community of partners. We've learned how to work together uh, more successfully. We've learned how to communicate our strengths and our weaknesses. And we've really learned how to build force multiplication, which is the principles in which you take your strength and their strength and a partner's strength. And because of those strengths, you really have greater strength than you would have independently. And so a uh, greater understanding of who, you, who your partners are, a greater understanding of the reliances uh, between those agencies working together. And most importantly to that is communication amongst those partnerships in, in a real-time, effective uh, way to communicate amongst these partners, I think is one of the things that will go away from this understanding and appreciating those partnerships that we've built. I think... It's, it's absolutely critical, those partnerships. And what, you know, one thing that, that we've talked about before in, in the food and ag sector is that, that most of the Homeland Security definitions of first responders typically are state and local agency type people uh, and federal agency type people, basically government employees. In the food and ag sector, we take it far beyond that. We take it to the private sector. If you don't have your private sector as a, as a strong partner, you're never going to get ahead of a food or agriculture emergency. In New Mexico, we train, uh, we work with our, our agricultural organizations. They go through ICS training just like uh, our, our state staff does and, and, our, and our county folks. 
So when you talk about state and local emergency response plans at the state level or at the county level, we always include the private sector in those annexes as well. I mean, think about the great partnership we have with, with people like Lorenzo. Lorenzo is not a government agency, he's a private sector. We have to have that correlation, that, that strong tie with the private sector folks uh, if we're gonna have any kind of success in the food and agriculture arena. We have a, in, we also have in our state a, a veterinarian, we call them our NM Alert uh, veterinary response team. All private sector, 20 plus private sector veterinarians that are signed up and trained in foreign animal disease uh, diagnosis and, and uh, necropsy work so that they can actually be our, our arm of the state as we go forward in any kind of an animal disease outbreak. You have to have that strong partnership and that, that tie and you make them an integral part of the planning process and creating those plans. As, as one of our county agents said one time, he, you know, he went through the, he went through the planning process. We, we sat down with the leadership of, of his area. They put together an emergency response plan for the county. They ended up with a snowstorm that was 52 inches on level all across the northeastern part of New Mexico. Think about 52 inches of snow. They pulled that team together who created the plan. And, and one of David Graham's most famous comments was this, the plan wasn't worth a damn. The process of making the plan was worth its weight in gold because we all knew each other. We knew what our capabilities were. Nobody could plan for a 52 inch snowstorm, but we were all in it together and we could figure it out really fast because we'd been through that process, you know, I'll, including I'll, private sector. I will add to that. And, and when you build those partnerships, one of the core tenets to that is, tr is trust and respect. And so, you know, you always say the time not to build a relationship in, is in the midst of a response to a disaster by handing out business cards. Well, there could not be any truer now than that. You know, you build those partnerships, but you got to have trust and you've got to have respect between those agencies. That they trust whatever you say you will do and you will do so in a way that's uh, transparent and you build those relationships. And that's true between local public health, state public health, the private industry, Department of Agriculture, Department of Labor, across all of those state and local federal agencies so that you can have trust and, and respect and, and total transparency. There's some core tenets to making that partnership successful. Oh, there's absolutely no way we would have made it through this without the partnerships that we have. And you're absolutely right. Uh, trust is definitely needed that's if the city wouldn't have trusted us they wouldn't have funded us if the county wouldn't have trusted us they wouldn't have funded us uh, that that to me they, that means that they trust what we do with our mission they know that we're capable they know that we're going to do everything to stay open but those partnerships are just so essential especially during a time like this i mean you can't there's no way the collaborative effort is what's made this happen here in our county. Thank you. And our one last question. Um, what do you think, uh, looking into the future, uh, food production and distribution will look like? For, for us, it's going to be a situation where we, as I said earlier, we're going to develop into uh, not letting a lot of people congregate in one area. <laughs> I think it's just going to be the way the wave of the future for us. You know, having to drive up pantry, we're going to have signups online, develop an app that people can sign up for our services. 
that would make it easy for everybody, uh, even uh, even even for how we operate. Uh, you know, we can get everything ready ahead of time. It, there'll be a window when they can do those pickups, um, and we know who's coming, at what time, and we can get that food out to all the families. There's even an opportunity for us to maybe do um, home delivery. I know El Paso is doing a program right now with the Lyft program that they're actually having food delivered by Lyft drivers to families that are either quarantined or are homebound. Uh, there's opportunities for us to learn from them. Hopefully this has been successful for them. But I think just there's gonna be things that we can do that that will just make it easier for families instead of making it more difficult. Uh, I think every once in a while we as nonprofit agencies think that we need to make it difficult uh, by requiring them to do this and requiring them to do that. Uh, but I think we need to simplify the process and, and make it easy for a family to come uh, receive the assistance that they need uh, for their families. Those are the things that we're gonna take away from this more than anything else. So I'll add into that, you guys, what's the future gonna look like? Um, I, I hope that we've learned where those uh, gaps are in food production, distribution, sales, service, across that whole continuum. I think we are aware of the fragileness of that industry. I think the one thing that I know that we'll come away with is a greater appreciation of locally grown, locally produced, and locally distributed foods and the importance that plays in a community. It is true in the resiliency of that community. It's important. Uh, it is critical infrastructure. And so as we get past this pandemic, as the vaccination becomes uh, more available and we move to some other place of normalcy, whatever that might look like, I know that we're going to go away from that understanding that food production distribution um, will rely more on locally produced foods than ever before. And we need to support mechanisms within the Department of Agriculture and other state and federal agencies to ensure that we continue to invest. We grow that local capacity to ensure that they have access to the marketplace, unfeathered access, if you will and that we put the programs in place to ensure the sustainability of that local growth that we're gonna see in the local growth, local foods community. I, I think I, I wanna add on to what uh, Joe and Lorenzo said. The food distribution in the future, everything is, is tied to technology. And what, what you're seeing across the United States, what we found out with COVID is that technology is not what it's all cracked up to be. We have a, a broadband, uh, I don't, I don't even know what you call it anymore. We call it broadband is, is the code word, but the, the ability to connect to the World Wide Web in some of these rural areas or even in some of the urban areas is, is a challenge, as you guys know through all the Zoom calls. The, the food distribution of the future is going to depend on your ability to connect. And, and you've got a uh, consumer base out there that sometimes they can and sometimes they can't. You've got greater uh, importance of the local food system. Uh, what is that going to look like? You're going to have uh, maybe some of these firms are going to come in and, and uh, invest in greenhouses and that kind of thing at the local level in some of these population centers, but you've got to have staff or technology. So technology is going to be the key, the ability to connect that technology to the, to a, a, a system that'll talk to it, it, each other over electronic beams, uh, 
whether you want to call it broadband or, or whatever is going to be the, the driving force. And I think that's something we're going to have to address. It's like having, think about the United States without an interstate road system. You can't get from one place to the other very fast. And when we invested in the internet in interstate road system back when, you know, it changed, it was a game changer. We've got to do the same thing with uh, connectivity through these electronic beams, like I say, whatever you want to call them in the future. Uh, that's going to be the key to success uh, of whether people can can get the food. This this idea of getting online and ordering food and having it delivered will probably be enhanced uh, if the connectivity is there and that kind of thing and help address. Think about today, your UPS and your FedEx trucks are probably carrying a lot of groceries. Lorenzo mentioned Uber and Lyft. Um, there's a lot of, of transportation logistics that are going to come into play. And, and how is that going to look? Uh, lessons to be, you know, crossed over with the distribution of the vaccines. Same kind of thing, cold storage and that, that, that whole challenge is, is out there. So that's, that's my view on top of what Joe and, and Lorenzo already said. Thank you to Jeff, Joe, and Lorenzo for coming on the podcast to share their knowledge with us today. If you have any questions or topic suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email at podcast at ncbrt.lsu.edu. Make sure you subscribe to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and we'll see you again next time.